We find ourselves here in the book of Ezra. Ezra, like First and Second Chronicles, is united to the book of Nehemiah. It was apparently one book. Uh, you will notice, were you to read through both of them at the same time, that there are some significant similarities. The lists, for instance, of the peoples that came back from exile are designed really to be exactly the same lists. So it may seem to you repetitive, and in fact it is. And I'd like to draw your attention to right here, read in your hearing, Ezra chapter 9. And I'd also like to draw your attention way back to 1 Kings as well. No, not necessary for you uh, necessarily to turn there, but nonetheless, in the book of 1 Kings, we uh, looked at Solomon's prayer of dedication in chapter 8 of 1 Kings. So we regaled in all of the glory, all of the impressions that the temple that Solomon built prepared by David, uh, how that reflected, of course, the glory of heaven. And we also noted, as we considered the issue of repentance, that Solomon did set before his people, as he set before us, the very real possibility, in fact, the prophetic factuality, that God's people would be exactly as they were exiled. Solomon prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8 for the exact situation that Ezra finds himself in in Ezra chapter 9. So Ezra is in chapter 9 now praying to the Lord and recognizing even their own, uh, their own lack of repentance and their own entrance into sin as they in fact have been redeemed from God, brought back into the land, even used by uh, godless kings to do that very thing. And so this book, Ezra... Uh, we see here the object and plan of the book here to show the manner, as Colin Delich say, in which the Lord, after 70 years in exile, fulfilled His promise announced by the deliverance of His people from Babylon. The rebuilding of the temple uh, is occurring here in this book. Uh, the, the restoration of temple worship according to the law of God preserved. The reassembled community is here. But something else is also here. Right? And that is the relapse into sinful practices. And, and perhaps we don't necessarily have to call it a relapse, but nonetheless a recognition that they are yet still in those sinful ways. That they've not perhaps repented historically of certain fruits of sin, but they haven't repented of the root of sin. And so what we have here in Ezra chapter 9 is yet another installation, if you will, of this concept of repentance. And, and so we see, again, we're looking at the, the, the sweep of Scripture and the, what it is that the Lord is doing in the Bible for His people, right? For us and for all those that would even follow us and those that were before us. What is it that He's doing? What are... What are the important pieces that God has for us? And again, what we have in the book of Ezra, of, of Ezra uh, we have rebuilding, right? We have a government established. We have the priesthood. Ezra was a priest of God. Ezra was a teacher of the Word of God. That's who Ezra was. Nehemiah was a government leader. And Nehemiah and Ezra worked together uh, in the things that God had called them to do. But it's very, very important for us to take notice of really what is front and center in the book of Ezra. And what is front and center in the book of Ezra is that same topic that we have seen before, and that is the topic of repentance. That's the topic of repentance, of, of a transparent life, uh, and what it is that the Lord 
is doing in our lives. Now, what we also see here in Ezra, that it isn't unlike our own day. It's not unlike our own day. We, um, we're surrounded by a godless people and a godless nation. And, further, we're inclined to be naive about the impact that this godless nation and godless people have on God's people. We're also inclined to think more of our own acts of righteousness, and we're also inclined to undersell the characteristics of sin in our own lives. Right? We're inclined to reduce the severity of what we have done and the kind of people that we are. And we're inclined to increase or add to even the sins of those around us. Right? And so this the same idea here uh, is spoken of, and really it centers uh, it centers the occasion of this repentance here is on a topic that certainly has enjoyed a bit of popularity in our own day, and that is the topic of marriage. The topic of marriage. So what we see here is the occasion, and what I would like to draw your attention to is, again, something that I've been helped by Richard Owen Roberts in his book, Repentance, and that is, uh, what are the marks of repentance? What are the marks of repentance? And we see this here in Ezra chapter 9. But first, let's look at the occasion the occasion of this repentance. And we have marriage here. Now let's think about marriage. Let's think about marriage. Let's think about biblical marriage. I might draw your attention. You don't have to turn there, but were you to turn to the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, you would discover that the topic of the longest chapter in the book of Genesis is on marriage. It actually records the touching narrative of the wife found for Isaac and of their marriage. And what you see in that is something that is recorded several times, and that is the blood-earnest way that Isaac's father Abraham speaks of marriage. Here's one example in Genesis 24, the second part of verse 2, going into verse 3, the Bible says this. So here's Abraham... And he's talking to his servant, and he says this, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. Put your hand under my thigh. You may say, that that's a really weird thing to do. And you would be correct to say that. That's not something that we do today, is it? But without becoming too graphic, I would encourage you to recognize that underneath Abraham's thigh is the very seed of Christ. Physically. In his body. That is the reason why the hand is placed under the thigh. But he does something even more urgent than that. What does he do? But call upon the witness of Almighty God that you 
would watch between us and that you would hold him accountable to do that which is urgently important. Now, I ask you a question. Those of you that are married, was there that kind of urgency in your marriage? Did it seem to you that all of the future hung in the balance of your marriage? Did it seem that way to you? Well, that's exactly what Abraham... I would, I, would, I would venture to guess that there is little that seemed to have such urgency in the book of Genesis as the marriage between Isaac and his wife and the expectation of the future for that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. Here's the one, here's the one application in the New Testament. Here is, here is the one regulation, here is the one admonition that God gives to us right here in 1 Corinthians 7. And it says this, In the Lord. In the Lord. And how many of us? We view that phrase in the Lord and we say, oh yeah, well, yeah, she's a Christian, he, he's a Christian, yeah, yeah. No, you don't, you don't, it, it may be that, that, that we, we don't understand. It is likely that we've not captured the urgency of the future and of the importance of marriage. So here's a question for you. How concerned are you over the implications of unequal yoking? What, as a father or as a mother, what is my responsibility in the marriages of my children? You may say, well, you know, whatever happens, happens. These things are mysterious. Well, sure, there's some mystery in love, in marriage. But is that, does that match the blood-earnest application that Abraham had regarding marriage? Are you calling upon God to witness the things that are involved in your own marriage and your involvement in the marriages of those who follow you. Now, there's something even more urgent in our day, and that is the absolute truth that the Marxist established as a top priority the destruction of marriage and family for one reason. was that reason? One reason. And you you may say, well, what does that have to do with today? Well, friends, that has everything to do with today because many of our countrymen long for the day when Marx has his way in our own nation. The public school system of our nation was established openly on Marxist principles. And you want to know what Marxism has to do with marriage? Well, I'll tell you this. There was a recognition way back when, in the days of Lenin and Stalin and Marx, that the single most important way in which I can destroy the perpetuation of the Judeo-Christian heritage is to destroy marriage. Full stop, end of story. That's it. And that first priority is far greater than every other priority that followed. The destruction of marriage. And there's nothing, nothing that would be more destructive to marriage than to play with it like our nation has. To so reduce its importance. 
To say that, that a man and a man can marry one another and so forth and so on is utterly sinful and demonic. And for us to consider that it's anything other than that, or even to say that marriage really isn't that important, is absolutely to fall into the hands of Satan and his minions. You want to play his game? That's his game. That not to be blood earnest with the future and to recognize that God has given but one building block of a society, only one. And what is it? You say it's the nation. No, it isn't. You say it's the church. No, it isn't. It's the family. It's the family is the building block of society. And we desperately need families that are built upon the principles of the Word of God. So we as God's people need to be the kind of people that are saying this, come with me. We know the truth. We have the answers. We know what we should do. There are profound unbelievers that recognize the importance that the Christian church has the truth for what the world needs. And it is based profoundly on faithful marriage, on men being men and standing up and doing the right thing, on women being women and preparing themselves to raise the next generation, for them to do that in accordance with the Word of God. No ifs, ands, or buts. We know that God's purposes and plans are that which alone will bring about revival and the perpetuation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think that Ezra understood that? Well, when's the last time you plucked hair out of your beard? When's the last time you ripped your clothes as an expression of repentance? And so that's exactly what Ezra did here. And so I'd like to draw your attention to six marks of repentance. Six marks of repentance. Here they are. Earnestness, indignation, fear, longing, avenging of wrong, and zeal. Six marks of repentance. Now let's set the scene We've already talked historically about Solomon on that great day when he dedicated the temple. Here's Solomon. He's crying out to God in gratitude and thankfulness for all that he's doing. He's regaling in a profoundly good future that Israel has, right? But he's also, again, recognizing that there will be a day that comes. We've already looked historically at this day as Ezra is here. But what is Ezra doing? Ezra is not leaping up and down. Ezra is absolutely distraught. Absolutely distraught over the sins of the people. And he owns those sins. I would draw your attention to the personal pronouns that Ezra uses. He doesn't say their sins. He says our sins. Right? That's an important distinction that we see here uh, in Ezra's words. But he is absolutely distraught. And he, he, is, he is sitting and weeping over the sins of God's people. Absolutely distraught. Fasting. Praying. This is, what, this, is, this is what Ezra's doing right now. As we look, we have a window in historically to what it is. What is the, what's the occasion of this? And, and here we have it. Let's look at verse 3 as he considers, uh, again, that, that uh, there, there are these marriages that have been mixed. There's been an absolute uh, uh, rejection of the importance that 
godliness is the profound regulation for those who would, who would be marriable for our people. And so this information has come to him. And in verse 3 he says, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment. I tore my cloak. The tearing of the upper and undergarments was a sign of heartfelt and grievous affliction. Again, it's a mark of repentance, earnestness. Are you careless or careful about your repentance being complete and pleasing to the Lord? Are you careless or careful? Is it routine for you? And what does that routine look like? I don't think what Ezra was doing was so routine. So routine that it might be considered bland. Right? I'm not saying that you need to fill this moment with emotion, but nonetheless, the reality is, Ezra was quite exercised in the moment. The tearing of a cloak was no simple matter as an expression of a blood earnestness. My communication with the men this week involved the same question that I'm asking you. Are you willing to take the Psalm 139 challenge? Psalm 139 verses 23 through 24 have contained in them, Search me, O Lord. Search me, O Lord. Some of you memorize that passage of Scripture. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O Lord. We're talking about the mark of repentance that has to do with being blood earnest. Now children, this term that I'm describing earnestness with, seriousness, sobriety, uh, is a term that again adds to the importance of, of this word earnest, right? A seriousness about what it is I'm doing. Search me, O Lord. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, before you're about to do something, are willing to say something like this? Hey, what do you think of this? Men, how many of you are willing to ask your wives before you do something? Hey, what do you think of this? I'm not talking about how to cook a roast. I'm talking about something much bigger. You see, we have persuaded ourselves that somehow we're a leadership failure if we ask counsel of others. Proverbs 11:14, where there is no guidance a people falls. 
but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. Proverbs 24.6, For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in an abundance of counselors there is victory. The proposition here isn't that you request other people to make a plan for you. I'm not talking about delegation. I'm talking about counsel. So it's so hard for us to ask someone, if we've not even developed a trusting relationship with somebody that we can ask counsel of, but nonetheless, what about asking God who knows your heart? So here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. is you look at Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, and you get alone on your face before God, and you say this, Search me, O God. And show me the wicked ways in my heart. And if you set this up and you provide yourself the opportunity to be blood earnest about this question, get a pen and paper ready. And pray through the list. And then ball it up and throw it away. A mark of repentance, blood earnest. Don't say that you have repentance if you don't have this mark. Because you don't. These are not negotiable. (laughs) It's not that you're trying to hit three of the six. This This is repentance. This is a mark of repentance. The second mark, we again look at verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. We don't use this kind of language. When's the last time you used the word appalled in a sentence? No, we, we're, we get bothered, right? We, we, uh, we get ruffled a little bit. Right? We, we become slightly uncomfortable with the situation because, again, we live in a society among whose chief words are a yawn and that I'm bored. Right? But what we have here, again, is Ezra marking for us this second mark of repentance, and that is indignation. Children, the word indignation is a word that is very much a close, akin to the word anger. The plucking out of the hair was the expression of violent wrath or moral indignation. You like anger? Let me introduce you to an opportunity to express your greatest wrath and indignation. You want to be flaming angry? Here's your chance. Now, what is the subject matter for this anger that I'm encouraging you to have?
your sin. Your sin. Should you be angry about other people's sins? Go right ahead. But that's not this mark of repentance. This mark of repentance... This absolute non-negotiable mark of repentance is indignation, and it is an indignation that involves your sin. Your sin. When someone confronts you with sin, are you upset with that person or yourself for sinning? When someone confronts you with sin, are you upset with that person or yourself for sinning? Richard Owen Roberts says, Any people who cannot tolerate reproof, rebuke, and instruction in righteousness are at heart an unrepentant people. Now you may say, well, I thought you were talking about, you said that, that we had the answers, that we're calling people to go with us, we're, we're marching to Zion, we're pilgrims on the way. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. But the pilgrim way is marked by repentance. The pilgrim way is marked by a blood-earnest repentance and an absolute non-negotiable indignation toward our own sin. Proverbs 15 reveals this idea that we must cultivate affection for reproof. The Bible says whoever hates reproof will die. Proverbs 15.10 Proverbs 15.12 A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. He will not go to the wise. We see this happen in front of our eyes, right? We see people that are floundering and they insist that they must learn by experience. Experience is a teacher. But in the sense of failure, experience is the worst teacher, not the best. The one who refuses reproof refuses to go to the wise. Proverbs 15.31, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores destruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Many of you want honor, but honor is a process. Honor is a process. And honor is the result of something. Honor is the fruit of something. The Bible reveals what the fruit, what is the fruit of here in Proverbs chapter 15. It is the fruit of humility. It's the fruit of humility. Your anger at others instantly seals you off from being sharpened toward greater levels of holiness. You send off signals that either welcome or repel instruction from others. We isolate ourselves from growing in holiness. 
How do we do that? You send off signals, right? Some men send off signals of bold courage. They're talking, but not listening, right? They express their abilities of knowledge, and they seem irrefutable. And so we create little walls around ourselves, and we say, oh, well, I didn't know that. Well, the Bible is revealing that to you today and to me. The Bible reveals that we must cultivate lives that are transparent. We must, we, we must have our brothers and sisters in Christ come up to us and love us enough to develop a relationship with us such that we can receive from them, Hey, brother, hey, sister... Christ is not shining in you as He could. And here's why, I think. This is what we want. This is what the Bible says. That's maturity. You see, we're inclined to view maturity as our ability to walk alone. The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ grows in maturity as they grow in dependence upon God and upon His people. Not in independence. We must grow in dependence upon God and His people. The second mark of repentance, indignation. Thirdly, fear. Look at verse 4 and verse 14 in Ezra chapter 9. Verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. The term here is fear. The mark of repentance is fear. Verse 14, Shall we break our commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? What are we fearing here? Well, we're rightly fearing God. It seems that modern evangelicals have banished the idea of fearing God. What's there to fear? All has been settled at the cross. Holiness is one of many options in my life if I want to be one of those fanatics, right? But the Bible doesn't describe it in that way. The Bible describes the fear of God, again, as a mark of maturity in Christ. And it is also absolutely a mark of repentance. Perhaps it, for us, in application, would be the fear that the busyness of life would keep us from fulfilling our chief end. You are busy. I know. I know you're busy. I'm busy too. Elijah was busy when God found him in the cave. What did he say to him? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Why are you here, Elijah? 
is there not work for you to do? Do you own yourself, Elijah, in every minute of your day? What's the answer to that? No. And what did God do for Elijah? He told him where to go and what to do. And God certainly has done that in in His Word to us. You are a busy people, as am I. But the question is, what are you doing? What are you doing? Our chief end, our chief purpose... To glorify God, to enjoy Him forever, to involve ourselves in what the Lord is doing. This is also a fear lest you literally spend your life on your cell phone, which Satan would absolutely delight in to keep you from what God has called you to do. Now you want to cock your head a little bit and look at me funny that I've introduced technology into this uh, particular sermon here. Something like a cell phone, right? Do you know that it is the express desire of the manufacturer of your cell phone that you spend all day on that phone? Did you know that? So how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? That, that, is, that, is, that is an epic battle. That's an epic battle. To use that device, which can be beneficial, and for you to be in charge. Are you in charge of the time you spend? On that. Do you make excuses and you say, well, I'm doing this and that and the other? Don't, don't forget your chief end. Fear and constant vigilance needed, lest some lack repentance in our lives, some lack of repentance in our lives keeps us from loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How concerned are you that because of your own lack of vigilance, you will not. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When is the last time you prayed and asked God to forgive you for that which the Lord Jesus Christ said was in fact a summary of the greatest command? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't make that up. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6 as well. And it is, of course, the express platform upon which we invest ourselves in all of our families. Fear lest a murmuring spirit rob God of glory and us and of the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Does your life commend the gospel? What do people say about Christ in you? The fourth point, longing. 
chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehel, and the sons of Elam addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. A longing. Does your repentance, is it marked by longing? That's a word that we really don't use a lot. We all long for things, right? We might long to finish up an important project, or we, we long to accomplish a certain goal. We long for food and air and water. The Lord Jesus understood this, of course, in Matthew 6, in part of the Sermon on the Mount here, in verses 31 to 33. The Lord Jesus says this, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, sometimes we we get this idea a little bit mixed up. Because the reality is, is that we do desperately need food and shelter and clothing in order to live. Those are, those are very, very important priorities, right? But where we get a little bit mixed up is we don't realize that our own spiritual nourishment is actually a greater priority, right? That doesn't mean that you don't desperately need the other things. But these other things are often what we long for, right? And, but do we long for? For God, do we seek first the kingdom? Do we seek first the kingdom? What do you long for? With what degree of fervor is your longing marked? What place do God's kingdom and righteousness have in your daily life? It is a battle for bread, for sure. We, we live in a day, and not unlike what was established in Adam and his sin in Genesis chapter 3. We do, we do enter every day into a battle for bread. For our daily sustenance. And that is an important aspect of the Lord's Prayer. But, are we longing for God? Are we longing for the holiness of God? Hebrews twelve fourteen. The Bible says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness. You say, well, how important is this? This is not holiness of justification. These are the good works that God called you to. This is the very purpose for which the Lord bled and died on the cross and endured the terrors of hell for those three days, paying the full price and penalty of the wrath that you deserved. 
you were saved for these good works. If you don't complete those good works and enter into the holiness, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the writer of Hebrews is saying very plainly, you won't see the Lord. Now, if that isn't something that'll put a spring in your step and give you a sense of urgency, I I don't know what will. The next mark of repentance, the avenging of wrong, chapter 10, verse 3, Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Now this is a difficult thing. But I think a significant part of this, again, is the idea of the avenging of wrong. How important is it in your repentance? It is, in fact, a mark of repentance. Numbers chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, the Bible says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed. And he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. You might be thinking right now regarding this mark of repentance and avenging of wrong, you may think, well, oh, what a glory it is that this is in the book of Numbers. I'm in the New Testament now. It doesn't matter. When I repent, what difference does it make? It's all forgiven at the cross. And then we look at Zacchaeus' mark of repentance recorded in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. The Bible says this. The Lord Jesus was entering Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Children, you know the story. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see Jesus, who he was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Who has gone into the be the guest of a man who is a sinner? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. What is Jesus saying? Well, we understand that in the gospel, repentance and faith walk hand to hand to Jesus. Repentance and faith. Often they're spoken of in the same terms. Both of them are gifts. But we see here in the life of Zacchaeus a mark of true repentance. And what is it? It is avenging wrong. Yes, like David, we can say in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. 
But that is an argument from the greater to the lesser. The reality is, as David did sin against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against the nation of Israel. David wasn't denying that. And he most absolutely made restoration in that part. The avenging of wrong is a mark of repentance. Lastly, zeal, 10.4. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. One of the most significant features of the church in the book of Acts is their zeal, manifested by the length of the sermons they preached and listened to, the days and nights they spent in fasting and prayer, the vast extent of their charity, the courage with which they faced persecution, their fervor in witnessing to others, the extent of their travels to bring the gospel to others, and the simplicity of their daily lives. Zeal. You see, the people that were surrounding Ezra understood that. Regarding this covenant that they would make, this expression of zeal, what do they say to him? Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. We identify, we know the importance of this, and you know what? We're going to make this happen, because this is the right thing to do. That's an expression of a godly zeal associated with the mark of true repentance. The zeal mark your Repentance. So these, again, these marks of repentance for us. And this is, a, this is a significant portion of the book of Ezra and what it is that God is doing. And what is, what is He doing in our lives, right, as a church, as God's people? As we're marked by repentance, what, what, do, we, what do we do in that? We should see, and God will certainly honor our efforts because we recognize that what are we doing is, but we're preparing ourselves to be used of the Lord. You see, the reality is, is we have work to do. We have a good work to do. And God's people embrace and love good work. And we're doing nothing by way of repentance. But, but further preparing ourselves and readying ourselves yet for this continued work that God has for us to live faithful lives, to draw others out of their sinful state into the goodness of God, right? To go forward, as it were, to heaven, marching together on this pilgrim highway. May our repentance have these marks. Let us pray.